He was a thief, a swindler, a drunk, and a playboy. And he would spend time in jail by the age of 16. At the age of 20, he was invited to attend a Bible study with a friend, and it would change his life forever. He would hear the gospel and believe upon Jesus Christ to take away his sin. He married and became a pastor of a small congregation. When he learned that his salary was made up from pew rents, which was the common practice at the time, he determined to turn down the salary and to live by faith. He had a great burden that his church would have their faith strengthened. He said he constantly met men, met men that were working 14 to 16 hours a day and too exhausted to enjoy God. So he would encourage them to work less and instead take the time to pray or read or meditate on God's word. They would assure him that if they worked less, they would be unable to support their families. To which he replied, my dear brother, it is not your work which supports your family, but the Lord. He became increasingly burdened with showing the church by visible proof that they could depend on God. And so after much prayer, he decided to open an orphan house. And as the saying goes, the rest is history. George Mueller and his wife Mary would go on to pastor a church, support missionaries, start a Bible institute, send Bibles and tracts around the world, and most famously, open an orphanage. Orphans were fed, dressed smartly, taught marketable skills above their class, given an education that by the day's standard was considered superior. Children did not leave the orphanage until they reached a certain age and had a proper job had been obtained for them. He built Ashley Downs Complex, which would go on to house 2,000 orphans at a time. He would eventually house, feed, and educate over 10,000 orphans. And he did it all without ever directly making known their needs. He never asked for a single penny except from God. Regularly, he would learn of food shortages. He said over the years they prayed for meals daily, sometimes meal to meal. Once upon hearing that there was no food for breakfast, he instructed to have the 300 children dressed and ready for school and take a seat at the tables in the dining room. He thanked God for the food and then he waited. Within minutes, a baker knocked at the door. Mr. Mueller, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning, so I got up and I've baked three batches. I will bring them in. Then there was another knock. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage, and he knew the milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. Would Mr. Mueller be interested in free milk? Mueller said, in all the years, the orphans never missed a meal. It was always provided, sometimes at the very last minute. It's estimated 
that George Mueller received and gave away over $7 million, all of that which was given by faith and in response to prayer. Now, he insisted he did not have the gift of faith in praying, but he had the grace of faith. The grace of faith needed to believe that God was living and his word could be trusted. His life begs the question, how do you take responsibility for hundreds, if not thousands of orphans and not be consistently or constantly plagued by worry and anxiety? Is that kind of daily dependence on God that he practiced, is that to be the exception or the norm? And is that daily dependence on the grace of God or our lack of it, is it related to our fear and anxiety levels? If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me once again to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we were here last week. But we're not going to read the whole passage. We're going to start at verse 30. Matthew 6.30 says this, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay, this morning let's start with some review. All right, last week we learned that to be anxious means to have a divided mind. We said it is something that everyone deals with. We learned that it is a complete waste of time and that it's sinful and that there's a difference between worry and genuine concern. Right? We learned that worry lives in the future. And then lastly, we learned that worry is a faith issue and that the remedy is to trust God, to seek first the kingdom of God. All right, now this morning, um, I want to clarify something. The medical community... When it talks, it makes a distinction between the common anxieties that everybody suffers from and, and anxiety disorders, all right? And they're going to define anxiety or disorders as something that is more severe and also it can uh, result from physiological imbalances. And so often with those, they're going to involve medication, all right? Those are a medical issue. Okay? We are not going to be discussing anxiety disorders or any of the other mental health issues. Okay? We're going to focus our um, study on the, on the more common worries and anxieties that are just common to mankind, to everyone. Okay, now, in fact, with that, I want to give you another definition for worry. And this is the first thing on your paper. It's a quote from, it's a definition from a British Bible scholar by the name of Dick France. And he said this, number one, worry is to be over-concerned about something other than the kingdom of God. Okay, he is saying that worry is when we are torn 
when we're divided, when we're distracted from seeking first the kingdom of God. God wants you, wants us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he doesn't want us to be distracted or divided about it. All right, so look what he has promised. Look at verse 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Okay, Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on the kingdom of God and my righteousness. And so I am going to provide for all of your earthly concerns. Jesus wants us to be so consumed with the rule and the reign of God in our life. So he says, I am going to add all these things unto you. George Mueller, his desire was to make the name of God great among the nations not just in Bristol, England, but the nations. And he knew that if that was his desire, that God would enable him to do that, that God would take care of his needs. Okay, now, before we go on, that raises an important question. Is this verse, 33, saying that if you are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that you will never miss a meal like those orphans, or that you will always have a roof over your head and warm clothes? Is this saying that if you are a Christian consuming yourself with the kingdom of God, you will always be supplied with everything that you need to live comfortably and stay alive? There are a lot of preachers teaching that. But think about it. Here's the problem with that. Christians, they suffer and die. Right now, there are Christians overseas that because they identify with Jesus Christ, they lose everything. They go hungry, they become homeless. Now, is that because they didn't have faith like George Mueller? Well, the Apostle Paul in the Bible, he was hungry, he was sleepless, he was persecuted and struck down. So how are we to understand the phrase, all these things will be added? Okay, John Piper is going to give us some help with that. I have this... Um, quote on your paper. He said this, everything will be given to us that we need in order to do God's will, in order to glorify God most fully, even if it means death. Okay. In other words, Jesus isn't promising us all the food and the housing and the clothing and the health care in order for us to be comfortable and to stay alive. Okay. The promise is that we'll have everything we need for doing God's will and for glorifying God. Even as Piper says, if it means perishing from exposure or starvation in the path of obedience. All right, our next point is going to help with this too. It's based on something Jerry Bridges said. Number two on your paper. God gives grace to the believer to strengthen and enable us to meet in a godly fashion whatever circumstances cross our path. Okay? Meeting in godly fashion, whatever circumstances cross our path. That's the goal. And grace is going to be given to provide that. Now, this morning, we want to spend some time talking about that grace. And we've got a great passage to do it. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus 16. This should look familiar. You had it in your homework reading if you did that. Exodus 16, we're going to read a large chunk of this 
in the first 12 verses, I want you to watch for the repetition. Okay, Exodus 16.1. Here we go. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of God, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew was gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Okay, we'll stop there. This passage is going to give us a wonderfully practical tool for dealing with our anxiety and worry. All right? So let's start by putting this story in its context. This story takes place about six weeks after the people have been delivered from Egypt, okay? So they had been slaves in Egypt, then God raised up Moses to deliver them. All right, so these are the people that would have watched God send the 10 plagues to Egypt. All right, these are the people that would have looked at the beach 
been standing on the beach looking at the water of the Red Sea and hearing the chariots from the Egyptian army coming in the opposite direction. All right, these would have been the people that watched the waters part so that they could go through on dry ground. Okay, so if we would have read this chapter in its context, those are the things that would have happened prior to this. Okay, now you get to chapter 16, you see the Israelites, they're in the wilderness, and did you notice their disposition? Okay, what's the repeated word that you hear over and over again in those first 12 verses? What is it? Grumbling. grumbling. They're grumbling. Grumbling, grumbling. It says in verse 2, the whole congregation was grumbling. Okay, this is full-scale rebellion. Okay, all right. Now, to be fair, they were hungry. They were thirsty. It's in the desert. Uh, there's about 2 million people that need to be fed and watered, not to mention their animals. You know, how do you even begin to feed a crowd like that? Okay, so from a human perspective, it's very understandable why they might be anxious and therefore why they might be grumbling. So now in verse, it tells us in verse 2 that they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but in verse 7 we're told, who were they really grumbling against? Who? God. Yes, they're, they're grumbling and their complaining is against God. All right, now I want you to look in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Okay, I would put a little question mark next to that verse because they are not mem remembering things accurately. Okay? Slaves do not sit by meat pots and eat bread till they are full. All right? The Bible describes their condition very differently. The Bible says they were under bitter bondage, that they were being um, beaten. They were being required to make straws without, they were being required to make bricks without straw. Okay? So God has just delivered them from all of that. And yet they ask, did you bring us out here to die? They're questioning God's intention and his goodness. Now, I want you to notice what they didn't do. Okay, let's notice what they did not do. They did not say, Lord, we are so hungry. But we remember the way that you delivered us from Egypt. And we remember the way that you parted the Red Sea. So we are going to trust you. We are going to have the kids dressed and the table set, and we're going to say the blessing, and then we're just going to wait for the baker and the milkman to show up. They didn't do that. Instead, they acted very entitled, and they accused God of pulling a very dirty trick of rescuing them from Egypt only to bring them into the wilderness to have them die of starvation. They do what people commonly do while suffering hardship and difficulty. They accuse God of not caring. Ever do that? They were basically saying, Lord, you know, you did some nice fancy miracles a couple of weeks ago, but they're not helping us now. We're hungry and you don't care. This past um, summer, I was dealing with some things that were making me anxious. And in my worry, 
I started to predict and prophesy like we talked about last week. I had um, a number of different ideas going through my head of what might happen. And then do you know what I did after that? I started to complain about it. I started to grumble and murmur. And mind you, I wasn't complaining about my current situation. I was complaining about what I thought might happen. How stupid is that? Well, it just so happened I was reading through this passage and studying for this lesson, and it occurred to me that my complaining was against God. And so I was like, you know, I I don't want to go there. I I don't want to complain against God. But there was also something else that I noticed, and that is that if you are complaining and grumbling about something, there is a very good chance that it is connected to something that you are worried and anxious about. Because worry and anxiety goes together with grumbling and complaining. Here's our next point. Number three, fear and worry can easily lead to grumbling, complaining, and anger. If your husband gets angry, there's a very good chance that he's feeling disrespected, but it could also be an indication that he is worried and anxious about something. Likewise, there are all different kinds of reasons why we grumble and complain, but it could be that it is the fruit of a very worried and anxious heart. There is a pattern that we see all through the wilderness story, and that is that the Israelites, over and over again, they're going to be faced with a fearful situation, and then they grumble. Okay? Their default mode isn't to pray and trust. Their default mode is to become anxious and then grumble. All right. Now, if you were here for the Esther series, we learned then that when you are studying the Old Testament narratives, who is always the hero? God. God is always the hero in all of the Bible. So while it's great to read through this passage and try to find something useful to learn from the grumblers, um, we want to watch for what we can learn about God, the hero. What is he doing? Okay, what can we learn about God from this story? In particular today, is there anything we can learn about God that might help us with grumbling and anxiety? Because make no mistake about it, the people in this story are anxious. We want to learn, is there anything from this passage that will help us to deal with worry and anxiety? All right, so what does this teach us about God? All right, let's remember the context. The whole congregation is in a full-scale rebellion against Moses, but we know that it's really against God, don't we? Okay, and so you might expect God to show his glory, to bring the cloud among the people, but with lightning and thunder, and for his voice to say, you whiny, spoiled children, I don't know why I put up with any of you. This day, I will strike you with boils so that you will know not to complain about me in the future. Okay, he doesn't do that, does he? They likely might have expected that. But I want you to see what he does. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Instead of striking them dead, 
He says, I am going to rain bread from heaven from you for you. I am going to fill your belly. I am going to meet and satisfy your physical needs. God is going to give them something that they don't deserve. They deserve the wrath of God, the judgment of God, but God is going to give them and show them what grace looks like. He's going to provide grumbling, rebellious people manna. Now, sometimes when you study this passage, the pastors will um, compare manna to the word of God and how you need to get up every day and gather the word of God. Sometimes pastors will teach that manna is a picture of Jesus because Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life in the Gospels. Now, I've heard both of those done very convincingly. Now, our pastor, if he did the, not our pastor, our author, if he did the homework, likens manna to the grace of God and how it applied um, to our lives. And he refers to this as the manna principle. And since um, the manna principle is all about grace, I want us to define a few words so that we're all on the same page with it. So in the Bible, the word grace means, and I have this on your paper, um, favor, blessing, kindness. Now, when it is used in connection with God, it speaks of God's unmerited favor. You've probably heard that definition before. It's undeserved favor. Now, um, that, the, the problem is that definition leaves out an important fact. Okay, and here's how Jerry Bridges defines it. Number four in your paper. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. You could also put wrath in there. Grace is not unmerited favor to nice people. Okay? It is unmerited favor to people who only deserve wrath. So I'm sure that those Israelites thought they were very nice people. Okay? But they deserve judgment. They're rebelling against their creator. All right? Have you ever heard someone say that they see themselves as a good person and that they'll go to heaven because they're trying to make good decisions? They're trying to be a better person. Okay, the problem with that is um, that's not the way the Bible describes our spiritual condition. The Bible says that we were born hostile with God, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we're born wanting to run our own lives, not bow the knee to our creator. Charles Spurgeon used to describe the man who had been convicted, he'd been condemned, he's got the rope around his neck, he, the trap door is about to be released, and then grace comes in and cuts the rope. All right, that's a good visual for what grace is. Now, next to the point, you can write two words, common and special. When you talk about grace, it's usually divided into these two kinds. You've got common grace or special grace. All right, common grace is the kindness and mercy that God extends to all mankind. All right, it's to all mankind. Let me give you an example. The sunshine and the rain, it comes upon the godly farmer and the ungodly farmer, okay? Common grace. There is a general restraining of evil 
on the earth. Okay? That is common grace. All right? Um, uh, flowers, music, beauty, sunsets, nice people, puppies. Listen, that's all common grace. It is the kindness of God on undeserving people. The fact that you can walk from this room to your car without incident is just common grace. All right? And the whole world is benefiting from God's common grace. All right, now, special grace, that's something different. Sometimes it is called saving grace. All right, this is the special love and grace for the redeemed. All right, this is the grace that leads um, to repentance and then results in salvation. Now, Jerry Bridges used to point out that we are not only saved by grace, but that we live by it every day. In other words, it's the grace of God that takes the noose off my neck. It is the grace of God that allows me to live without it, to live noose-free. Okay, that brings me to a secondary meaning that Bridges has for grace. Here's the next thing on your paper, number five. Secondary meaning of grace, God's divine assistance to us through the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to write next to this definition in big letters, power. Okay, power. Because grace is power. Grace is the power to live to the glory of God. Okay? All right, now let's go back to Exodus. I want you to look at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Right now, jump down to verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, okay, now up to this point, the people have been questioning God's wisdom, his providence. They've been accusing him of not caring. So he is going to show them what he is like. He wants them to know him. And they're going to have a better understanding of who he is and how he works after they wake up to the manna and are filled. Last week, we learned that our fears and worries have everything to do with God and always say something about our relationship with him. Here's our next point. This comes from Elise Fitzpatrick. She says this, number six, knowing God as he is, is a mighty weapon in our ability to overcome fear. One of the best ways that we can combat fear and anxiety is to know God. To know him experientially, to know him through his word. Can I tell you? that I worry and fret about things like everyone else, but not like I used to. Not like I used to. I used to be much worse. 20 years ago, I had much more anxiety and worry. Now, is the improvement because these days I'm older and it's safer and life is less stressful? Is it because uh, my health and my parents' health is becoming less of a concern the older I get? No, no. Life is still um, 
anxiety producing. But there are two main things that I can account for this change in my life. Number one, my husband got saved. I shared this with you last um, semester. And so now I have a husband that prays with me. And that has rocked my world. It has had a major, major impact on my worry because now when we're worried, we go together and we pray about things. And now we have a, a prayer notebook where we keep track of all the things that are worrying us and tearing us apart. We're keeping track of it in our notebook. And do you know what it's providing? It's a history book of all the kindnesses and all the ways that God has been providing for us. Okay, that's the first way. Second thing is I am growing in my knowledge of God. I'm growing in my knowledge of God. Um, I certainly don't know him perfectly. I don't know him fully. But I know him better than I did five years ago. And as I come to know him, then I can trust him better. And then I'd worry less. Now, I shared uh, last week about how quickly I was uh, made aware of my weakness in this area, so please don't misunderstand. My point is this. If you are to have any victory at all over your worry and your anxiety, then you're going to have to know your God intimately. All right, verse 4. Verse 4, we are told, we start to get the details of how that manna was to be gathered. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. All right, then skip to verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. All right, God's being very specific about his instructions, and they were to be obeyed. All right. They were to take their pot, go out into the field, take as much as you need, gather enough for everyone in your tent, as much as he can eat. Now, an omer was basically um, a day's portion of food. All right. But I want you to notice they had to get up. They had to take their pots out. They had to bend over. They had to pick it up, put it in the pot. Okay. The food did not magically appear in the bowl. All right, now, it is supernaturally appearing in the field, but they had the very ordinary work of physically getting up out of bed every morning and then go and, filling, uh, and gathering it. Okay, now notice what happens in verse 17. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. All right, now something supernatural is probably taking place here because everybody's different, and yet whatever they gather is meeting their needs. All right, now I want you to notice what Moses tells them in verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. They were not to stockpile. They were not to hoard. All right, here's our next point. Number seven, God wants us to daily trust in him. You've probably heard that before. What? But think about it. What happens when we stockpile? 
What happens when we have a stash, when we have full cupboards and a big bank account? Well, trusting in God becomes a lot less needed. We start trusting the silos. God didn't want them trusting the silos or the doctors or the jobs or the education. God was teaching the Israelites they were to trust him daily. In fact, they were to wake up with trusting God being the first thing on their minds. Now, apparently, there were those that did try to stockpile. For whatever reason, they were either too lazy to get up in the morning and go out and gather, or it's possibly they had other things they wanted to do first thing in the morning, so they tried to double up and gather more than was needed for the one day. Or another possibility is they took a look at the crowds of people and then they looked at their own child and thought, oh no, what if there's not going to be enough left over tomorrow? Whatever their reason, they disobeyed the instruction, the clear instruction, and they tried to stockpile. All right, now look what happens, verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Okay, now that's how we know this wasn't accidental. This was an intentional um, uh, breaking. They were intentionally taking more than they needed. They were trying to stockpile. All right, verse 21. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. All right. There, were new, there was a new, fresh portion of manna every morning. I have on your papers a verse from Lamentations, chapter 3. It says this, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Okay, with the exception of the Sabbath, they had fresh, new manna every morning. All right, here's our next point. Number eight, God's grace is sufficient and new every morning. God's grace, God's mercies will be sufficient for today's problems. It will supernaturally fit today's problems. For tomorrow, you're going to need new mercies. For tomorrow, you're going to need a fresh batch of manna. Let me ask you, how many of you are worried about the economy crashing or a school shooting or job loss or your children getting behind the wheel of a car or, your next, or the results from your next mammogram? I want you to hear me. The manna isn't on the ground yet. The manna isn't on the ground yet. As I was preparing for this course, it felt like I was getting a lot of opportunity to be anxious. And so um, I cannot tell you how helpful this principle became. I would find myself fretting and worrying. And I would catch myself and I would think, Heidi, you are worrying about Thursday. 
this is Monday. Thursday's manna isn't on the ground yet. Concentrate on Monday. God has promised to provide you all the manna that you will need for Monday. It's going to supernaturally fit the needs that I have for Monday. And then on Thursday, God will provide me fresh new manna for Thursday. But you don't get Thursday's manna three days early. I don't get to stockpile grace. I don't get it in advance. Have you ever wondered if you would be able to remain faithful if somebody put a gun to your head? or threatened you with prison, or threatened someone you love. I can get very sad thinking about that because I wonder what, what, what I would do. But here's the thing. I, I didn't have to face that today, so I wasn't given the grace for it. Someday, if it comes to that, I will trust that God that I will be able to take my empty pot and go out and gather up all the manna that I need for that moment and that the grace will be there and that it will be sufficient. Verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Here's our next point, number nine. The literal meaning of the word manna is, what is it? The manna was something new to them. They didn't know what it was. It was new. It was different from anything that they were used to. They had eaten all different kinds of, or seen all different kinds of things in Egypt, but they had never seen anything like this. This was something that they had never imagined before. Okay, here's our next point. Number 10. God graciously met their need with something completely new and different and satisfying. Someday, you're going to have a problem or a need or your back is going to be against the wall and it's going to make you anxious and worried. And you want to remember and understand the word manna and what it reminds you about God and what God is like. He may have plans to rescue you and deliver you in a completely new and different way than he's ever done before. He may have plans to, to keep you in that situation and minister to you in, in a completely different way. God's grace may come in many forms, but it will come. It will be there. I want to close with two points of instruction that the author had about grace. It'll be things that we talk more about in the weeks to come. But they are, number 11, at on the grace God gives you today. Wait confidently for the grace God will give you tomorrow. Would you pray with me?
Oh, Father, how can we even begin to understand how gracious you are? How you show us grace and how undeserving we are. I praise you for that. And I pray that, that this room will all be able to just get a taste of that and understand it. And Father, will you help us to act on the grace that you give us and learn to wait and trust for the grace we'll need for tomorrow. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.